and welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike tried his coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Jason Stark <laughs> is against humanity. Take away the human elements of Starkville. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Your innings, and welcome to Starkville. It's the heavily sleep-deprived version of Jason Stark. I read about baseball for The Athletic, but I'm about to spend the next week sleeping about 20 hours a night. But as always, I am joined by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former Major Leaguer Doug Glanville, and we do this every week. So if you enjoy listening, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're a fan of our show, you know what would be cool? If you would also give us a review. Thanks. So, Doug, uh, I'm still a little bleary from literally working all night after all those World Series games, but I'm going to give this World Series four stars on a scale of five because I thought this was tremendous entertainment start to finish. Uh, now, we'll talk about this shortly with our special guest, Oral Hershiser. But how about you, Doug? How many stars would you hand out? It, four is good. Four is good. I, I mean... Yeah, I, I think it was really um, considering the season that these players were up against, what our world was really up against. And, you know, first of all, Major League Baseball pulling it off in, in some degree, uh, given that there were so many unknowns and challenges. And then, you know, you got to see two incredible teams. You had a team that has the big payroll, the super talent, Mookie Betts, the, the new acquisition uh, the team that has kind of been there but hadn't quite done that. You know, just the Dodger stories with Kershaw. Uh, they were kind of on the other side of the, the Astros scandal. So there was all these sort of unfinished business about them. And then here they're playing against the Rays, which are the, the underdog, the team with not, without the big payroll, the sort of uh, the misfit island kind of thing. And um, And yet, you know, even though they can only kill you like the death by a thousand bunts, you know, they're just, they just figure out a way to beat you. And um, I think they showed their strength. So that was a lot of fun to watch those two teams together be on the field and you see how evenly matched they were. So I got a lot of enjoyment out of it and, you know, don't think I missed an inning. It was, it was a blast. Yeah. Like all that is true, but I, let, let's think about all the stuff that happened. I mean, we had a legendary game. The Brett Phillips game is unforgettable. We had a guy try to steal home, straight steal. We had a squeeze bunt. Doug, what's the last World Series with a steal of home and a squeeze bunt? What do you think, 1914? Uh, you know, it felt like we had some pivotal managerial decision to second guess every night. <laughs> right. Love yeah. that. We had a little controversy break out during the post-game celebration. That's yep. a first. Um, the only thing that was missing was a Game 7, right? But I, I don't know what day or week or month they would have wound up playing that Game 7, so luckily we don't have to find out. But if there was a moment or a game, what was your favorite thing about this World Series? I mean, it, it has to be Game 4 uh, with the Rays, you know – 
Yeah, the Rays just coming back and just the game itself. It was a, it was like Ali Frazier, like boxing, you know, third inning, fourth inning. They just kept scoring on each other. And it was tit for tat and it was lead changes. And then, you know, this sort of hero out of nowhere comes in and gets this big hit, and you know, to knock in the guy that like also seemed to come out of nowhere, right? Randy Rosarena and Brett Phillips. Uh, so, and, and I think it was memorable because I was watching it with my wife and my son. So it was one of those moments where we were able to slow down. It was still late at night. He was still up. That's a whole other question. And, you know, we were like, <laughs> all right, dude, you're up. So, and yeah, so I mean, that, that kind of stood out to me. That was just a, that sort of encapsulated both these teams and, and the amount of fight that they had left after a really weary season. No doubt. Um, I mean, it wasn't a full season, but it was still a very challenging season, and it had an epic ending. That's all you can ask. All right, let's bring in our very special guest. It's the former Dodgers Cy Young winner and now one of the great analysts in the TV business for Sportsnet LA. It's Arl Hershiser. Arl, so honored to have you join us here in Starkville. Oh, it's an honor to be with you guys. Uh, my dog, Nora, will be in the background causing the music and everything else here in this. Uh, we're in like a 1,700 square foot apartment in Pasadena where we live to during the season. And then we ship back to Las Vegas when the season's over. But still here because we have a few more responsibilities postseason. I bet. Well, I, you know, we, we've had many dogs guest on this show. <laughs> Drew Carey's dogs have like a whole <laughs> cult following now, so... We, we can bring your dog in for any special comments <laughs> that okay. he or she may have. Uh, you know, Oral, you're like, you're like what we like to call the perfect guest. Not only are you Uh-oh. smart, erudite, charming, you're also the living link to the last two Dodgers World Series winners, right? You're the broadcaster for the 2020 team. And the last time before this year that the Dodgers won the World Series... We're going to play you that final out because it sounded kind of like this. Three and two to Tony Phillips. Lansford down the line from third with two out. Steinbach on deck. 5-2 Dodgers in the ninth. Got him. They've done it. Like the 1969 Mets. It's the impossible dream revisited. Who was that voice? It sounds familiar. <laughs> uh, that that's uh, Mr. Scully. Yeah, I think it was that... Senior Scully. Well, he's like rubbing his shoulder back there, like uh, recreating the moment. He's <laughs> well, go back and look at how many innings I pitched yeah, that what, year. <laughs> like, what do you, what do you remember about that moment? Because you were in short rest that night, but that was your yeah. year, so it was fitting that you threw that pitch. But whoa, how did it feel? How did your arm feel? Well, we we actually scored runs early in that game, and it's Game Five, and we're in Oakland. And as soon as we scored the runs, I think we got like five in the first couple innings. I'm like, I'm going to be the biggest goat in the world if I can't put this game away. <laughs> and it's from the second inning on, I'm carrying that burden of, I got to put this game away and I want to be the last guy on the mound. I don't want anybody else to throw that last pitch. So the whole game, that was my concentration factor. A, of course, to win the World Series, but my short-term micro thinking was, I want to be the guy on the mound at the very end. And I ended up giving up a few runs. I think we won five to two. I think I remember Stan Javier got in the lineup and had a base hit to left that drove in some runs. But uh, it was a game where I was tired. 
it was, I was definitely tired. I go back and I look at some of the mistakes I made. I look at some of the pitches I made and I've actually called Tommy on some nights where uh, I'm still in the game and I'm watching the replay and I'm like, Skip, I can't believe you left me in. <laughs> you know, I would have had me out of there. And in this generation, you would probably have me out in like the fourth. But uh, yeah, it's know. unbelievable. You know, the, you know, when I game face, it's a really odd reaction after Tony Phillips strikes out because the pitch before that or before that, I uh, stood back and I said, you know what? Two strikes, two out, man on third. I had gone into the windup. Even there was a man on first. I said, go ahead and steal wherever you want. I'm going to stay in the windup so I have a little bit more energy. And uh, I, I took my game face off before the last pitch and started looking around and saying, I'm going to soak this in. And I started to cry. Wow. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't do that. So I put my game face back on, put my head down, started concentrating, staring at the dirt, staring at the rosin bag, anything to get composed. And then I walked up onto the rubber and looked in for the final sign. And so my my reaction to the winning, I barely have a smile. I'm like, I'm just clenching my fist and putting it over my head. And I've still got my game face on because I couldn't turn it back off right away then. And then it finally started to settle in when Stubbsy comes over and Jeff Hamilton and Rick Dempsey picks me up and everything. But yeah, it, it was a different moment for me as far as uh, that last pitch. I always ask guys about the last out of the World Series for that exact reason. Do they take in the moment? It, I know you still got to play the game, but the moment, is so yeah. unique. It's so hard, Jason. I mean, Doug, this is, I, you know, you're out there and um, it's so present tense thinking. It's its hard to say, what's the future going to be like? What's the past been like? I got to soak this in so I remember it. Because it's like, it's all about execution. It's not about results. If you think about the results, then you can really go haywire. You know, I'm going to be a goat. I'm going to be a hero. I'm going to be the MVP. We're going to win this. We're going to have a parade. We're going to, I'm going to do the Johnny Carson show. You know, I'm going to be the, I'm going to be a guest at the last Reagan state dinner and sit next to Margaret Thatcher. I mean, I'm telling you all the things that happened after it, you know, I'm going to get a deal with Mitsubishi and I'm going to get a free car for three years. This is going to be amazing. You know, so you can't sit there and say, take it all in. You got to deliver one more pitch to Tony Phillips and hope you get him out. Yeah. But, but as you just said, there, there is an emotion in the ballpark. I mean, it was a little different this year, obviously, but there's a special right. emotion that, look, this is my favorite thing about my job is being in a park where the home team wins. That feeling is not something that you experience anywhere else in life. And you're the man on the mound as all that emotion is pouring down. How can you miss it? Yeah, the... Um... So the seventh game of the National League Championship Series was at home, and I threw a complete game against the Mets. And I'm, I'm had that feeling, like you said, in the ballpark, with you know fifty six thousand people standing and the cheering, and it's so loud that you, it's like being next to the ocean, where you you're the only one in the room, and it's easy to concentrate when you have that much noise going on around you, um, and then to have the place explode. And, you know, police guarding us and kids running on the field and grabbing the hat off my head and teammates and trying to get off the field, almost like the video you see of Reggie Jackson in New York trying to run off the field for safety. That moment was huge. To win it on the road in Oakland, it was more about family that was traveling with us, the media, 
um, moving to the media rooms after for interviews and Tommy giving his speech up on the chair with champagne coming all over him. And, you know, nobody believed that we could beat the mighty Mets. Nobody believed that we could beat the team that won 107 games, but we did, you know, and he's going crazy. So it, and then the feeling that you're talking about, Jason, of, of being on the mound in front of the home team and winning that came when we arrived at the airport, when we got to the airport and got home, the airport, I don't know how many people were there, but I can just tell you it was packed like sardines and they were just trying to see us. And we had police escorts just to get from the gate as you had to walk through the terminal to get to our team buses and actually got separated from the team and ended up being thrown into a rental car van from the police. <laughs> oh, no. uh, the policeman threw us into a rental car van, my wife and I, and said to the guy, get these people out of here he'll give you a tip. Don't worry. And the rental car van going, that's Oral Hershiser. Oh my God. Yeah. Where do you want to go? I'm like, just, just get us out of here, please. I mean, people are rocking the van back and forth. My wife lost her shoe. And then somebody, since the van's only going like three mile an hour, as you're trying to get through all the people, somebody found her shoe and threw it in the window, <laughs> knocking on the, the glass with, and the guy rolls down the window and goes, ma'am, is this your shoe? She goes, Oh, thank you so much. So yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Crazy moments because of the World Series and the championship. Really, and I'm glad you brought up Tommy playing that underdog card because he did that. Oh, and it was something that sorry. I thought about uh, as I watched this team play in this World Series because people kept talking about 88. And I couldn't stop thinking, could there be two World Series winners that had less in common than the 88 team and this team? I don't remember anybody calling this team the plucky underdogs. <laughs> right. No, it's kind of a reversal, really. We, the The Dodgers of 2020 were the Goliath, and and you know, back in '88, we were the David. And so, yeah, it's completely a reversal of uh, the storylines for sure. But did, did you and, and did you all that power sinker? Did that always was that always part of your repertoire, or is it you know? Uh, cause that yeah, thing, they, they, you know, they, you know how they adjust you in the minor leagues. They, you know, and so. What was great about the Dodger organization is, and you guys have been there and seen it, I think you're old enough or have been over there, but they had the string area. And the string area was like six mounds and then the six catchers. And there were strings there that they showed you the strike zone. So you'd throw to the strings. And behind that was an area where there was a patio off of Dodger Town's eating area where management, uh, front office people, Roy Campanella in his wheelchair would come out. Sandy Koufax would be there on a lounge chair watching you throw side work. Tommy would come over in his golf cart and be behind you. Ron Paranowski, your pitching coach, and he was the minor league coordinator, be there. And Larry Sherry would be there. And Johnny Padres would be there. And Don Drysdale, as a broadcaster, would be there. It's like you are having side work sessions in spring training with like the Hall of Fame gods of baseball and the Dodgers watching you. So you, you learn about pressure. You learn about execution. But you'd also learn so much about baseball and pitching because – after throwing your side work or even during your side work, they would make comments and they would talk to you. And about two out of every 10, one of my fastballs, I would hear them say over my shoulder, that's it. <laughs> that's the one. That's it. Now, I couldn't do it every time, but I'm getting this feedback of that's what they're looking for. That's the movement they're looking for. Yes, down right there. No, not that flat one, this one. And then I could feel my body 
and what I felt to get it done and then sit there and turn to Sandy Koufax and say, what do you think? And Sandy's like, well, the guys that have really good movement on their fastball right at the very end, they kind of get their chin out of the way. So their shoulder can kind of roll forward and get inside the ball better. I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm doing that. And if you do it too early, it takes you offline towards the first baseline and then it flattens it out. But if you do it right at the right moment after foot strike and right as your arm's accelerating, you can all of a sudden roll your shoulder in and really get the thing to go straight down. And so all of that kind of feedback, I can give you those little intricate details about what they were teaching me subtly or you know bluntly. And that's where the, the sinker came along. And then finally, you know, a half a year in a ball, two years in double a two years in triple a, a trip to winter ball in Arizona instructional league, a trip to Dominican Republic, a trip to Venezuela. And you got a stinker good ah. enough to be in the big leagues. Excuse me. Hi, Nora. Speaking of bulldogs. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> uh, no, I have a nickname bulldog, uh, in my pet food company. I'm the chief bulldog. Um, I don't have a title. <laughs> chief bulldog. Yeah. yeah. Hey, the bullpen didn't pitch, didn't throw one pitch in the World Series when you were on the mound. So right. if if you yeah. were starting for the Dodgers or even the Rays in this World Series, do you think I there's any chance? I wouldn't want to be a starter for the Rays. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. <laughs> After what happened in that last game, I, I, no, I don't want to start yeah, for right. them. Okay. They're going to have a tough well, time signing free agent pitchers. Well, that's the question. <laughs> right, do you, like if you were starting today in 2020, do you think the bullpen yeah. would still throw zero pitches? No, I think they would definitely pitch in a lot of my games. I think this generation, it's more about pitching staffs than it is starters and relievers. Um, I think that, I think the game is harder for pitchers. The information exchange is sped up completely with what the, the hitters can get. You know, Dougie knows that, you know, the, the studying of a pitcher was more like, you know, how many games were broadcast when I got to the big leagues, maybe one or two, and you barely had video on the guy you were going to face. Uh, you really the, the information that they have now and uh, is really good. I don't think I would sleep in this generation as far as studying the opponent and them studying me and then going, okay, I've studied myself. What are they thinking? You know, back then it was either, okay, the guy's a first pitch fastball hitter. Hey, the guy's really strong away. Oh, you need the jam. This guy, this guy is a terrible breaking ball hitter. The scouting reports were so much more basic. Um, and you did a lot of scouting as you were on the mound. But I think the, the hitters are, are much better now, and there's very few first-pitch fastball hitters, so the pitch counts get up in a hurry. I, you know, I, I, I found myself wondering whether, as we, as we were thinking about inviting you on the show, whether anybody will ever do— You had to think about it, thank <laughs> well, we were We were trying to think, ask ourselves, who's the perfect guest? But, <laughs> oh, yeah. but will, will any pitcher Good ever do what you did in the World Series, throw e even one complete game, let alone two? Wow. I, Snell could have had one, I think. 73 pitches, and he's buzzing through the guys, the, the six batters, the six times the guys that were coming up that inning, he had struck them all out. Right. So let's talk about I, that. It, it what was, was your reaction? What a godsend it was to the Dodgers. It was just a huge godsend. I mean, Doug and I have been on the bench. We've been in a locker room. We've been in a game. I'm battling Dwight Gooden pitch for pitch. I'm battling Nolan Ryan pitch for pitch, and they're going to take him out for a pinch hitter in the National League. That was a great thing. It's like it's 0-0 zero, zero in the seventh, and they're hitting for Dwight. I'm like, thank God, yeah. you know? Right. And now this is in an, you know a DH league, and they're taking him out. I'm like, you know, there's a quote from Dave Roberts in one of our interviews on our postgame show. I think Dave said, uh, 
Mookie looked over his shoulder at him when they were taking him out and just smiled. You know, this just puts wind in your sails. I mean, this guy is just knocking you out. There is nobody on the bench other than Chris Taylor that had gotten a hit off of him. Chris had the home run in the first appearance off of him. And then he had the single earlier in the game. And then Barnes gets the single and he's out of the game. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, so, so you, it's strange. I mean, look, I know you're in tune with baseball as it's played now i'm sure you understand the thinking right the thinking is i do but the data points jason the data points are not from every the same situation i mean you look at the data and you go okay third time around the order this guy's not that good oh my gosh these guys when they've seen a pitcher three times their batting average is this oh the dodgers score more runs in the seventh inning than any other club and and you go on and on okay you get all the data but nobody is a man on first in a World Series, and the guy's thrown 73 pitches, and he's sticking the bat where the sun don't shine. I mean, that's not a data point that they're looking at. <laughs> you know, at some point, you have to say the context is a little different here. And so I think it's a good marriage, you know, m- melding it back and forth between the eye test, the physical strenuous, strenuous of each pitch, the reaction of the hitter. Are they meeting the ball, missing the ball and pulling it foul for loud outs and now they're on him? Or are they still missing the ball by three feet and they have no, no clue? Are there swings of quality swings? Are the at-bats ending in three pitches? Are they ending in seven and these guys are on him? It, we weren't even close to hitting him. <laughs> well, I just I think you made a new metric right now. We're going to call it the SDS, the sun don't shine. <laughs> uh, we're going we're to measure that one out. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and Oral, you mentioned it. Like I was so compelled by listening to the Dodgers post-game interviews about Snell. That really told the story. because, And that's data, of course, you know, Kevin Cash doesn't have. But right. when you hear hitters say how thankful they were, that, you know, like basically you knocked yourself out of the game. You know, mm-hmm. it would be like a guy throwing a no-hitter and you just fell down the stairs and sprained your ankle. That, that's what, you know, it, it, there, was, there was something that they communicated how difficult it was to square him up all night. And, and the, to see that as a momentum shift. And I think that's that was the story to me. It wasn't something even quantifiable, is that they knew that they were up against a brick wall. Yeah, you live by the sword and you die by the sword. They were there probably because sabermetrics and data and putting guys in situations where they could perform at their best and they won games. But, you know, I believe the Dodgers won the World Series this year because they didn't go completely by the data. They didn't go completely by we live by the home run and by launch angle and exit velocity. They played small ball. The first two runs in that game for the Dodgers were on base running, you know, with Mookie on the second run breaking with the infield in and a ground ball right to the first baseman, but he does it with small ball. And then Austin Barnes scored on the wild pitch slash pass ball, whatever it was. And it was the Dodgers were a complete team this year compared to years past, and we can – dive into 217 and the cheating that it took seven games still for the Astros to beat them. So I think they probably would have won in 17 without the cheating, but the Dodgers makeup coming into those world series were a little bit too much strikeout, not enough walk, a lot of home run and not as much precision on the base paths. And this year they hit all those categories, two outs, two strikes, uh, two outscoring position, you know, walking, striking out less, running the bases perfectly, uh, playing defense even at a, a slightly higher level than the other teams, even, that even though the Dodger teams of the past played really good defense. But they played a complete baseball game, and I was really proud and excited for them to win because their team and the way it was constructed and the way they played was really good for the game. 
I mean, what what changed, Oral? I mean, was it simply Mookie Betts or I think, was it something yeah. else? I think a little bit of Mookie and I think a little bit of frustration of the other years, whereas the holes and the holes weren't in power. The holes weren't in starting pitching. The holes weren't in, you know, the bullpen a little bit. And they said, well, you know, our bullpen needs to be deeper because there was some fatigue in the past years. But I always said they got tired because some people knew what was coming. (laughs) They wouldn't have thrown that many pitches or be called on to pitch because these situations kept being created that they needed another pitcher. I think the bullpen probably was deep enough if it wouldn't have had to throw so many pitches under so much stress. And uh, so I think it was just the years of frustration and analyzation of how do we make this team better? And the only way was two strike hitting, two strike RBI, two out RBIs, walking more, everybody grinding out at bats like Justin Turner does, everybody grinding out at bats like Mookie Betts does. And Max Muncy with his, even though his average was so low, you still had to throw him strikes to get him out. And then all of a sudden it came on in the playoffs where he started hitting the ball when it was in the strike zone, but he's still great on base percentage, great grind out. You know, the MVP Corey Seager is probably the only guy that most, most at bats end in the first three pitches. And a lot of them end after one pitch. Cause he's just the kind of guy that see ball hit ball. If I can reach it, I'm going to kill it. And he has a swing where he can. I, I want to get back to the thing that the two of you were talking about, um, which is the idea that once upon a time, I think, part of managing was thinking to yourself, what does the team I'm playing least want me to do in this spot, right? And now we know that the games are, in a, in a lot of ways, scripted, and not just in the Tampa Bay dugout. Dave Roberts, before the Kershaw game, said Dave Robert, Clayton Kershaw is going to play, pitch and face 21 hitters. That's how many he faced. He was also following a basic script. At what point should managers have the freedom in this day and age to override the script? Go ahead, Doug. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still working in the industry. <laughs> Dave Roberts is a regular guest on my podcast. No, okay. I'm um, I think I think that there's a blend there that I think some managers have, and I think we see some organizations that go strictly by, like you say, a script. I don't think we always know which way the script is going, but we know in moments in the game, you're going to look down at the script and say, this is the decision that should be made. It's a... It's an interesting time because the more bodies that you go to and the more changes you make, the more you can be second-guessed and the more opportunity there is to be wrong. So I think managers' seats have gotten hotter. And I think that, uh, you know, the, what was the first script? The first script was 100 pitches. He's getting tired. You've got to get him out. You know, that was the CYA kind of thing. That 100 pitches, got to get him out. You know, don't want to hurt him. Don't want to ruin his career. And 100 pitches has turned into 21 batters, 73 pitches. Third time through. Strenuous. Yeah, third time through. So, yeah. And I think, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think there's some flexibility there. I, I would hope there's flexibility there. But Dave Roberts went from kind of goat on social media to hero. Because yeah. why? All those relievers functioned and did so well in the last game. But you go back to, uh, you know, games prior, he was getting second-guessed on a lot of stuff. Yeah, well, there's, all, there's also that. I, but, you know, that whole thought process is we're going to get the pitcher out of the game before he gets into trouble. We're not going to wait till he gets into trouble. And I watched the Rays a lot. Um, this was their MO, right? This is how they 
got here. It's how Where's they the did data it. on the guy they brought in had given up runs in five of his last six outings? Oh, six in a row. Right. Or and six that, in a row. Like, that Where's was the kind data of, on that? Yeah, that was kind of the flaw in the, the whole decision-making <laughs> process is, um, I mean, I heard Kevin Cash say it again after that game. Well, this is how we did it all year, and yet this, is, this should be like one of my rules. In the postseason, the manager should never be allowed to say – this is how we did it all year because what you did all year doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is win tonight. Am I right? Yep. I mean, I knew I was tired in the last game against Oakland, and I knew McGuire and Conseco were starting to catch up to me. And uh, so I, I, I threw them both sidearm breaking balls in the beginning of wow. the game on purpose because I wanted to put that in the back of their head, knowing that if I was out there in the seventh or eighth inning with – very little stuff still that maybe their bat speed would be slightly slower and their next at bats they both flew out to like three feet short of, of the wall <laughs> and so i'm like that it worked it's like i got them slightly off on timing and indecision they're just not completely locked in now they crushed the ball but it you know landed short so i'm i'm like all right good job but i never did that in a regular season <laughs> i would never do that and and these shifts i you know Dougie, if, if he did shifts against you in the regular season, it'd be a great way. To, if you knew you were a playoff team, it'd be a great way to set a team up to beat them in the playoffs. I mean, <laughs> right. I would work so hard on hitting ground balls to the right side to win a World Series or a National League Championship game. And people go, that's not the way you hit. It's like, that's the way I hit when I need to win a game. <laughs> a game, not a season. Right. A play, a one. I mean, and part of it is it's, it's that small sample size that, that kind of always comes up. And, and so you look at Nick Anderson and you see a small sample size. Okay, he had some bumps in these few games and you, you, could, you could compartmentalize it. And then you say, but look at this body of work for the whole season. And so you're trying to figure out is, who are you? Are you Nick Anderson 2020 regular season or are you Nick Anderson, this pedestrian version of him? And, and I think that there's a, a natural rejection to those smaller samples, even in the postseason. And, and, and it's a different animal. And, and I think that's, that's something where analytics is, struggles with that. It really does. Yeah, I think uh, there is. I mean, I, I, there's so many things that I think about that happen in the playoffs compared to the regular season. I mean, a big league hitter that is capable of hitting 20 to 25 home runs with a certain swing, and he knows he's going to be an everyday player, he will keep that swing and that approach for that season. And, and that's the way he's going to hit. And when he goes into a – Lump and he's over 15 and hasn't hit a home run. He doesn't go back in the cage and start reinventing his swing. He he says, I'm going to come out of it and I'm still going to hit my 25 home runs and drive in 80. But in the playoffs, you got to know who the baseball players are because the baseball players will go from the regular season approach to an adjuster and a gamer. And, you know, that's what I loved about the the, the blue collar Yankees of the years with Jeter and Paul O'Neill and Posada and Bernie Williams and Tino Martinez, those guys could grind out a season, but they got to the playoffs and they played playoff baseball, you know? And I think uh, Bobby Cox was really good at that. I think Whitey Herzog as a manager was really good at that. And Tommy was good at it. And Tommy gave us, a lot of freedom that year in 88 to be better than we were because he allowed us to kind of experiment and do things. And we had to because of roster and injuries, but we also were allowed to be baseball players. Look, I think we have to talk about Justin Turner. Um, Oral, Justin's decision to go back onto the field and celebrate with his teammates. 
um, despite testing positive in game six. How should we look at that decision um, from your standpoint? Well, I think decisions started uh, with Major League Baseball not having the test results come back pre-game or post-game, but during game, I think that was very strange to, to put yeah, him in a was. very tough position. So I think you need to go back to the beginning of that story. Uh, I have never heard of a player being announced that he had COVID mid-game and did they break HIPAA rules by letting that out? Uh, that was odd, I thought. I thought it also was odd that when a player tests positive, they've never singled out the player. They've, they've shut the team down, the whole team. So I don't know. I don't, and I'm not trying to protect Justin as much as I'm trying to look at it with neutral eyes of everything that happened and how it was handled. And then you get to the conclusion part, which you're talking about, which is he says, I'm going to leave this room and I'm going to go out and have a picture with the trophy and get in the team picture and ends up being out there, I guess, for about 20 minutes. I'd say at least half of it, he had a mask on, but for pictures, he was taking it off. Um, you also saw his teammates say, where's red and they wanted him out there and uh, they were willing to give him a hug with a mask on and they were willing to take that personal risk. How did he get it when he was in the bubble? That's another thing. Um, so it's, I think it's a really uh, complicated thing that went on that Justin is getting picked on, pointed out for his decision. But I think there's a lot of decisions and things going on prior to his decision of saying, I want to be there at least to celebrate a little bit. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I want to ask you about Clayton Kershaw. Um, when just knowing how your October story shaped your whole saga, right? Mm -hmm. How does Clayton's October shape his story? Well, I think it's a really nice eraser um, of what happened this year. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think uh, baseball needed Clayton Kershaw to win a world championship. Baseball didn't need another. Ken Griffey Jr., Ernie Banks, uh, Juan Marshall, uh, just name, go down the list of the top 20 baseball players in history that didn't get to win a world championship. And the, most, the thing that I'm most excited about with this world championship for Clayton is that he was a main contributor. I didn't want him to win a World Series and be the fourth starter that doesn't get in there and really doesn't contribute and goes 0-2 with a 5 ERA, but Bueller wins three games, you know, and the bullpen <laughs> does an amazing job and the Dodgers score 10 runs and Clayton, you know, a game to cover him. I, to have him not only win it, but to be a major con con contr contrib contributor, that's where the icing went on the cake for me is as far as a world championship for Clayton Kershaw. I mean, and Oral, what do you think people are, are most missing about Clayton Kershaw's story? Because, you know, it's, it's this bifurcation and the way it's sort of categorically summed yeah. up. It just seems like something's missing. Is there context you could add to you know, what he's been through and, and what it's actually meant? Well, what, what you, you know, see? if you break down the starts, and I think it's 30 starts now, 11 of them on regular rest, 30 starts 
30 appearances, 11 starts on regular rest, I think it is. And the rest of it is three days rest or relief. The ERA on three days rest or relief in the playoffs is over five. The On regular rest, it's like two and a half. So there's part of the context of, of that. Then, then you think about the Houston series where he gets whatever, 35, 40, I don't remember the number, swings and misses on the breaking ball in Dodger Stadium and pitches fantastic and goes to Houston where they know what's coming and they don't swing and miss at any breaking ball in the whole game that he's out there. And he loses a like a three-run lead, a four-run lead, a five-run lead, and it's never really even happened in his career. I think his, his record is over 100 and like one when you get, get him four runs. So, yeah, some odd things have happened in his postseason. I think early in his postseason career, and he's admitted to this, um, that he came in with his regular season mentality, regular season pitch selection, regular season sequencing. Um, and I think when you get against the best teams that need to win a game against the best pitcher in the game, they are going to not only scout him, but they're going to change their style to win that game. And I think he got to a point where they started to expect the fastball in the righties. They got to expect the down and in slider when he got ahead. They got to expect that he's not going to go to his arm side very often. They got to expect that he's probably not going to land his curveball unless it's on today. He's going to be mostly fastball slider. And I think he would give up some surprising home runs where somebody finally caught up to his unbelievable stuff in a certain way. And, and he has then said and admitted that he has softened and used the arm side a little bit more, thrown his curveball a little bit more, even though he's not landing it for a strike some days, thrown his slider and taken some speed off of it so that even though they knew it was coming, it's not 87 or 88 this pitch, it's 83. And it's got a little more depth and a little more change of speed. So I think he's more of a pitcher now out of seeing why he was failing in the playoffs and also seeing that his skills were starting to diminish, even though they ramped back up a little bit this year as far as velocity and location and health. So I think, I think he's, he's a better pitcher with the tools that he has right now. He, he was one of the best stories of this postseason. I don't know anybody who wasn't happy to see Clayton Kershaw do what he did. It was beautiful. Um, hey, I can't believe we've gotten this far into this podcast without asking you about that Mookie Betts guy. Oh I, I want to ask you a question that I, I asked Dave Roberts uh, the other day. Um, when you first heard that this deal had a chance to go down, did it strike you even then how unusual it is for an MVP, 27 years old, in his prime, to get traded? Boston must have known he wasn't going to resign with them. They must have, there must have been conversations and there was an offer there and he said, you know, I'm going to I'm going to inspect the free agent market. The biggest surprise for me was how quickly he signed with us. You know, all he had was right. a spring training 1.0. He had a little bit of what summer camp and then, yeah. and he hadn't even played a game for the Los Angeles Dodgers and he signed a 12 year <laughs> extension. I mean, that shows you how good our organization is. You know, even you walk into the locker room. Oh, I like this place. Oh, you walk into the steam room. Oh, this is really cool. Oh, you got a quiet room where you can sleep over here. Oh, look at this batting cage. This is amazing. Yeah, I want to spend the next 12 years with these guys, you know. And I know there's a big number on the end of the contract. But, but to say I'm not going to go look around and I'm not going to tour around with all the other 
I know I love the weather here. I love Los Angeles. I'll get involved in the community. <laughs> and then we are just over the moon with his skills and his personality and his work ethic. I don't, it is hard to oversell Mookie Betts coming to the Dodgers and then even harder for him to surpass all the expectations. <laughs> it's ridiculous how good this guy is. I mean, I don't even mean baseball. I mean, how good he is at showing up on time and how good he is at doing his work in the outfield and how good he is at going to the infield, how good he is at taking Edwin Rios aside and saying, do this, how good he is at common Kike Hernandez down and making him even a better fielder and a better player. And, you know, fitting in perfectly with the leadership of Kershaw and Justin Turner and, you know, standing up in a team meeting like the second or third day of camp and <laughs> talking about what the difference is between being a good or great team and being a world champion and saying, this is the kind of detail, what we have to do. I was in the meeting when he did it. It was, it was unbelievable. I'm like, this guy's here. It's like a third day. It's like, <laughs> follow me. It was, it wasn't John Belushi in Animal House, but it was, it was like, follow me. Here we go. And he lives up to it on a daily basis. You know, every leader has flaws. Every leader has a day where they come in a little cranky or, oh, they don't work quite as hard or their concentration's off. Or He hasn't had a moment. Forget a day. Yeah. My favorite thing about watching Mookie is that attention to detail and the, the, how absorbed he is in every pitch, every inning of every game, every one. Like, how rare is that? You know. His mom His mom said, don't do anything unless you're going to do it great. And I think he lives by that every day. He, you know, he's a 300 bowler. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of course he is. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I need to watch him eat. Maybe he's a great eater. He must be the best foodie <laughs> in the world. I want to see what kind of wine he drinks. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it, he is he's as complete a person that is, I've ever met as and been around and I haven't been around him long enough. And that's another disappointing thing about COVID. It's like, we don't get to go down to the batting cage. We don't get to hang out with these guys. I'm like, God, they won a world championship. They're going to do so many great stories to hear around the cage and talk with them. But yeah, Mookie from, from afar right now uh, is probably the most complete person and baseball player I've ever seen. Yeah. And, and oral, <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, it just, it's clear, you know, I, I got to do the, 90 feet with Buki Betts once just walking from home to first in an interview. And, and within 90 feet, it was like, this guy's like Picasso mixed with, you know, like Einstein. I mean, if we spoke Japanese, it'd everything. probably be like Ichiro, huh? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, really incredible. And, and so, and I know, Oral, we've kind of texted and talked a little bit offline before. And uh, this season, outside of just its unusualness of 2020, in the rules side of it, we also had a lot of social conversation. I know mm -hmm. you and I have kind of kicked it around. And and, and speaking of Mookie Betts, I mean, he's also been you know outspoken mm -hmm. about just having baseball be part of the solution. I mean, what did you see as, as sort of the Dodger family embracing a, a, a sort of a new sensibility around how we can come together as a country, as a people, using kind of sport as as a conduit? Yeah, and I think you know. That would be the best conclusion is to use the sport and the, the optics and everybody coming together within the sport and then showing that to the world. I think the thing that where it started in the Dodger locker room, uh, George Lombard, our first, first base coach, uh, Dave Roberts, our manager, Mookie Betts, our right fielder, and then others. And it came with communication. It came, uh, you know, 
they had many conversations and were grinding on issues and realizing uh, how people that are not sensitive to what black people have been through in this country and around the world, uh, becoming more sensitive to, to your life, um, the things that you have to learn and react to or not react to. And I think in that education and that communication, it really brought the team closer and closer together. And it became that, you know, these guys are easy to follow as far as the social injustice and equality issues because they're communicating. And now the white players and, and even the Latino players that have been through stuff are kind of all on the same page. And I was blown away by some of the podcasts and TV interviews and things that you had done and others had done, Harold Reynolds, that to hear the conversations that what the guys have lived and I have called around and talked and apologized for being a bad teammate. And people are like, you know, Reggie Smith and different people are like, why are you calling me? I'm like, I feel like such a bad teammate because I'm hearing so much of why the brothers, quote unquote, the brothers would be in the corner talking about stuff, but wouldn't want to share it within the rest of the locker room because you guys wanted to win and you didn't want to be a distraction, but you were dealing with things on a daily basis with your family, with yourself, with whatever fears you might've had that day, but nothing happened, but you still had it. And I feel like if we could have been better teammates and known what was going on or had been more sensitive to it, we probably would have felt like we could back you a lot better, you know, and be there with you. And so, yeah, with a lot of phone calls, a lot of conversations and it's, 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 uh, it's definitely made me more sensitive to have bigger ears and more sensitive ears of listening what's going on around and what people are dealing with and living with um, in a way that, you know, equality needs to be a given, not something you kind of earn. There's no way. It just should be, should be a given. You know, the Earl, I'm not sure if you heard the roundtable that Doug moderated um Yes, I did. Here at the athletic. Yeah. But yeah, I mean what you just what you just described, I had the same feeling. I mean the 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 guys on that round table were people I'd spent hours of my life talking to and I'd never had that conversation. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what's wrong with me? You know, and it sounds like you had a very similar sensation. Yeah, it was an epiphany almost like, you know, I've never thought of myself as a prejudiced person, so I'm not, but I have I've, but I have thought of myself as a sensitive person and I wasn't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it's like it opened up an area that I thought I already had attained. And so, yeah, it definitely, you know, Dontrell Willis and all the different guys that, that Doug was with it. Uh, I called them all, I, you know, I kept texting and getting phone numbers and, and, and wanted to call them all. And, uh, and, uh, Preston Wilson and I have developed a relationship now because there was a little Twitter battle that we had. And, and so I just, I, I found out his phone number and I called him and now he calls me brother. He congratulated at me after we watched the, the world series, you know, he's texting congratulations. That's gotta be great. I said, Oh, I'll call you soon. And, and you know, this, it all started over uh, communication and it's fantastic and I absolutely love it. And uh, it's made my life a better life for sure. Communication is good. Write that down. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Dougie, you haven't said anything, so now I'm all nervous. Like, you're the brother. You you know, yeah. I'm all nervous about, yeah. give me some no, critique I, on I, what they said. 
No, I mean, I, well, Oral, it's, it's it's actually beautiful to me, actually. I think the way you captured it, and I think Sean Doolittle was on a lot earlier in, in our season and talked about, uh, in the same way that you did, I hadn't even thought of it that way, the idea of how not giving you the opportunity to be that teammate, right, and 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 what you may have done differently. You know, and, and look, it's not it's sometimes based on the fact that maybe players have tried at different moments and been frustrated or, or like you said, worried about being a distraction, that sort of curse word in, in any right. locker room. But I think you, the, the idea of being a teammate, uh, not only in on the field and between the white lines, but it's really also off the field to see that there is a completely different experience. And, and there's always a sense of, oh, well, don't bring that in here, right? Because some, to some degree, we do escape our lives to be in that locker room, right? Our different, our family, a mm-hmm. baseball family. And it was, so there's been, and there's a lot of internalization that happens with players. And, um, and, and so I, I appreciate that you, you're taking the time to listen. And, and that's just a, such a big step in and of itself. And, and you see this season with baseball trying to, you know, make sense of Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. and trying to understand symbolically and different teams trying to sort it out with, within a community of people that are from really all over the world. Uh, and, and to me, I think there's a large validation around not just people who are have your common experience say, as, as being black, but people in, in and around that have different experiences that come from different identities mm-hmm. and still recognize the center of this as humanity. And, uh, and I try to encourage i mean look you your dodgers is the legacy of jackie right. robinson this is and i know you've come across their family mm-hmm. you you know that story and uh and that's that's a great place to lead and and one of the things i say all the time is robinson's did you know he there's robinson early in his career where he was kind of quiet to do what he needed to do and then there's robinson who was activated and for the rest of his life was not quiet. He was marching and writing letters and testifying and opening banks. And and I was saying baseball needs to kind of look at that guy and also realize that that's an important voice to to tap also, that he he had a a lot of other complexities to him. And um, so I guess I say that out of, you know, appreciation. Yeah, you texted me and you left messages and I know we actually need to continue oh, we this will. conversation. And you know what, we, you know what we'll I was looking for, and, and I found in my personal life, and maybe this will help somebody that's listening, and I don't know how much time we have left, Jason, I'll take tell it quick or whatever, but the action item for me uh, became, personally, that I am more sensitive to everyone in the world, but especially people of color. And this is what I mean by that. I was taught to open a door for a lady. I was taught that if you see an, a, a, a young um, um a grandma with a cane and she's crossing the street that you should help her across the street. So there, there are stimuluses in the world, which are people that make you react in a certain way because you were brought up that way. And this incident and all this communication about equality has made me be uh, more sensitive to be friendly to black people, to smile at them as I pass them on the street, to open a door, to do different things that I do for other people. Not that I ignored black people before or Latino people before. I was always friendly and outgoing, but it's made me more sensitive to know I can make that person's day by treating them equally at the highest level that I know how. And that's, that's where it affects me on a daily basis. And it actually has been fantastic. I, I, I love doing it anyway, being kind, being courteous, being smiling, uh, changing a person's mood. 
And so I, I, I don't go out of my way. It's just a new, it's a new stimulus in my life to, to act properly. We could do a whole podcast just on this, um, but l l let's try Especially to wrap with a guy this up. named Oral. I, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I got I got two things. One is, what's the future of this Dodger team? If if you were Andrew Friedman, how would you approach this offseason? Well, there's you know there's some free agents. You know, Justin Turner is. I think Kike Hernandez is. Jock Peterson. I think there's some others. Um, you know, it depends on how that part of the roster shakes out. Then you that might create some needs, uh, you know, attempts to to sign people. Uh, you know, I don't know what they're going to do budget wise. You know, with Mookie now and Clayton will be off the books in another year. But who who would think that they're going to let Clayton go? And if Clayton wants to pitch, they're going to want him to be in a Dodger uniform. Uh, somebody else has one more year or so. Well, the, the free agent class of all those great shortstops is coming up with uh, Seager being right. part Corey of it. Seager's in that group. Yep. Yeah. So I think it's always a moving train with a roster, right? Everybody wants to critique roster moves after it's all done, but nobody remembers the context of each move and, and where the train was moving at the time and how the general managers or presidents had to make decisions as things were, people were going off the board and this team made a trade over to here and we were talking to them, but now that one, that deal's done. Now we got to shift. So, I, you know, Andrew is, is so good at understanding the landscape of everywhere. And he's probably got not an A, B and a C plan. He's probably got him down to Z that guy. And he, he got a lot of heat coming here to LA, but I think everybody loves him now. I mean, he is not strictly by the numbers guy. He is such a people person. He understands the character of an individual when he's building a team, how they're going to fit in the locker room, how they're going to forget fit with the coaches. Are they pliable enough to listen to us? If we want to change their pitch selection, are they pliable enough to, to listen how we want them to lay off of this pitch as their, as an offensive player and just hunt this pitch and, and not only do they study the player and and what they're about and how to improve them, but they study the guy's character, I think. And uh, he's very good. So to give you specifics of what they're going to do, they're going to do it right. Uh, you lose Ryu, <laughs> Maeda, Rich Hill, David Price opts out, and you win the World Series. Okay? <laughs> so they're going to do it right. <laughs> yeah. Andrew's amazing, man. If he were a quarterback, he'd be Peyton Manning, right? He'd line up over the line of scrimmage, look around the field. He could read the defense. He, he knows what's going on on that field. All right, we can't let you go without playing America's favorite game, Know Your 88 Dodgers. Oh Are you ready to play our game, Oral? Yeah, come, in, come on, embarrass me. <laughs> no, you're going to be good at this. Uh, you are the winning pitcher in two of those games in the 1988 World Series. Hmm. Who won the other two for the Dodgers? Uh, Belcher gave up the home run in game one, but we come back and win. So who was the reliever when Gibson hit the home right. run? I have no right. idea. Uh, that, that's the stumper. <laughs> stumper already with the reliever. Okay, well, we want to take a shot at the I'm other gonna starter with, to win a game? I'm going to go we're down, and I, he wouldn't have brought Jay Howell in, I don't think. So I'm going to go with uh, – I don't know. I think it would be Brian Holden or Alejandro Pena or Jesse Rod I don't know. Tell me who was it? Uh, okay, it was Alejandro, Alejandro Pena. Pena. Yeah. All right. You have to get you got the other starter to win a game besides you? Uh the well, it's either Leary. Was it Leary or Belcher? Was it? It was Leary. 
I'm going with Lear. No, it's Belcher won game four. I don't right, know. So you whiffed on that one. I'm going to whiff <laughs> but, on all of them because I'm... No, you're not. You're, you're going to get this one right. Here's what I know. I know that the rubber's below my feet. I know there's dirt there. I know there's grass. I know there's dirt. And I know there's catcher's fingers. That's what I know about 88. I'm in that tunnel. I do not see the Philly fanatic. I do not see the vendor. I do not hear Tommy Lasorda yelling at me. I am in a tunnel vision. There is nothing. You could put a bomb next to me. And I would not hear it go off. I would just see Sosha or Dempsey's fingers and deliver the pitch. <laughs> All right, I'm sorry, but I, I know you're going to get this one right. This is our well, final question. How many question. blades of grass are between the rubber? I, I could give you that blade. one. You would get that one. <laughs> yeah. All right, look, here, here, here you go. Okay. Two Dodgers didn't make an out at the That's plate an easy one. in the 1988 World yeah, Series. Who were they? The guy only got one hit. He got all the pub. I, and the other guy <laughs> went three for three. <laughs> right. I mean, okay, name him. You can do it. Kirk Gibson, he goes one for one with the home run that we all watch every year, and it's the best moment in Dodger history. And then I go three for three and throw a three-hit shutout, and nobody – it's a footnote. It's unbelievable. What? <laughs> Not a footnote. Nice. Not That's anymore right. because we played that game. Oh. You nailed that question. Oh, of course, because I go nice. around and I tell people, like, jokingly, you know, they tell me about Gibson's home run. I was there. I'm like, yeah, I was there too. And uh, <laughs> and there was also another guy on the Dodger team that batted 1,000 on that team. And they were like, who was it? Was it Hamilton or was it Hatcher? He had a lot of – I'm going, no. The guy went three for three. They go, nobody went three for three. I'm like, yeah, somebody went three for three. So, three for three with nice. two doubles. Oh, wow. Yeah. Head. Wow. Right. We're just slugging that series. I wouldn't want to race Doug, but I was pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> All right, all, we're going to let you go. It was so much fun. Well, that's the end of the quiz. Show, oh, thank God. Especially this week. <laughs> yeah. You nailed the quiz. You oh, told yeah. the stories. It was beautiful. Listen, Are you going to write us another so book? Much. I love your books. Are you going to write another book? Yeah, we need. Am, I know am I going to write another book? That early. 2020. What is, there there will be a time. Everybody says I got to write the book of 2020. I, oh, that'd be great. I don't know when I'm exactly going to write Agreed. that book. What are you going to write? You didn't get to talk to guys except for Zoom calls and <laughs> remotely. <laughs> yeah, it's because a lot of strange stuff went on, and I'm the master yeah. of the weird. Yeah. yeah I want another so golf book. Double headers. <laughs> golf, yeah. That's all okay, right. Well, somebody else is going to have to write that Oh, one. <laughs> I want you to go out and do some golf stuff, something like that. Because I can relax when it's about another sport. A baseball book I'm going to have to study. <laughs> Oral and I actually talked about writing a book together once upon yeah. a time about pitching, the art of pitching. Oh, but they, yeah, nice. they did. They did some other books, yeah, on pitching that I contributed a little. Tyler Kepner just did a great book on that. Very oh, I topic. helped him a little but, bit on that. Yes, you did. Sinker stuff. Yes, you did. Yeah. Well, revisit that. You never know. Yeah, you can you. tell I, I don't have much I material. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Listen, man. Enjoy the off season. All, right. All the best. Thank you so yeah, much for visiting oh. us here in Starkville. My pleasure. All right, Doug, it's time for one of our favorite parts of every podcast, listener trivia. Our way of involving you, our favorite listeners in this show. And as those of you who listen regularly know, we now literally involve you. We invite you to join us on the podcast live to stump us with your questions and Doug, you know, for a long time, we were not very good at this. Then you came up with your creative scheme to basically cheat unashamedly. Now, we might need to convene the uh, Distinguished Competition Committee this offseason to determine if there's any need for a crackdown on your scheme. What do you think? 
Well, I, I can appreciate that. I think we could reflect as, as as baseball with the season ends, you get some clarity and you decide to revisit some things. Uh, I, you know, the, the, uh, I've been tested for PEDs. Uh, I'm completely clean. And uh, so I think it's definitely uh, not a factor here. But, you know, I, I, I wanted to make sure we just didn't go uh, winless. I feel like we were on the track of being winless. So I figured I'd add that we'd put both our brains together. I yeah. would guess. You would guess. I would guess different answers. We'd combine them into one brain, and then that would be it. So that seemed reasonable since our, our show is called Start Bill Together. Uh, but I'm open to suggestions as to uh, how we go forward. Uh, you know, I'm I'm just not an asterisk fan, and I think we are into asterisk territory. But whatever. Now we've gotten what I think it's four of the last seven right. That's right. We won the World so Series, I'm, four to seven. We got it. Yeah, we have. We did. Uh, so let's see if if we if we're doing the arithmetic correctly, then the the scoreboard would say uh, listeners at eleven, but Stark and Glanville now with four. Right? That's pretty hey, good. Yeah, we won the key four. Four out of the last seven, uh, we're world champions. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I think we got a good shot at this one. So let's bring in this week's special guest trivia contestant. It's Jeffrey Gow. Jeffrey, thanks for joining us here on Starkville. Hey, guys. Nice to be here. Uh, now, Jeffrey, it, it says in your Twitter bio that you're an economist and a part-time sci-fi novelist. Right. So how many part-time sci-fi novels have you written? Written two parts of two part-time <laughs> sci-fi novels. So uh, <laughs> yeah. no uh, no complete novel yet. I like it. Okay, though. so you've written two parts of two different novels, yeah. but no complete novel. Yeah, or no complete published novel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that well, that's something different. to strive for. See, the story will converge somewhere in the future. See, that, that's what I like. He's He's... He's going to combine them into a trilogy, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, so shouldn't you be writing a novel right now or saving the economy instead of talking to us? Uh, probably, probably. <laughs> but uh, figure uh, World Series uh, World Series just ended, so uh, yeah, uh, I'm not going to get any baseball for the next uh, four months. So uh, yeah. yeah, get my uh, get my kicks in there. Well, good. well, this podcast will continue, so we'll yeah. do our best to keep your baseball fix fixed. Uh, look, we love your question. How did you come up with it? Uh, well, I mean, I just, you know, watched the last pitch of the World Series, and then I'm like, that's interesting. Uh, you know, <laughs> Udias uh, closed the game, and he started the game earlier. wonder if that's ever happened before. So as okay. with any time that comes up, I, you know, look at what happened historically, and, uh, yeah, question just yeah. came from there. Yeah, that's how those trivia questions work, actually. I compose quite a few of them myself. So, all right, your time has come, man. Hit us with this week's Starkville trivia. All right. So this year, Julio Urias became the fifth pitcher in the wildcard era, so since 1995, to get the last out of the World Series, as well as start a game in that same World Series. The question is, who were the four other pitchers? Okay, so Doug, you got this five pitchers mm -hmm. since 95, right. started a game in a World Series, and also got the final out. Okay, so we right. need to come up with well, here, Well, here's my little tidbit question. So so if you had a complete game, does that not count? Because like, you did get technically the final out, but you started that game. I mean, is it do you have to relieve, or is it? The question just like, is just uh, if you started a game, 
and he got the last out. So okay, all right. Uh, from it a can be a starter yes. who pitched a complete all right. game. All right, right? yes. Okay, well, that's good to know. Now I was thinking relievers. Yeah. You know, off the top of my head, Doug, um, I want to say I know Madison Bumgarner was obviously one. I know Chris Sale was one. I know Charlie Morton was one. I can still remember the sight of Randy Johnson walking out of that bullpen and to pitch the ninth in two thousand one. But it's possible I'm confused here. Or I'm missing somebody. Right, but that's a walk off, um, right? So. Oh, good point. So that's the trick, right? It's not the yeah technically I, the last out, I guess. I don't know. Oh, right. Um, yeah, well, let's get a ruling on that. That's not the last out, then, right, Jeffrey? Yeah, it's like a, literally the last out, as in the out happened, and then. Oh, okay, great. Right. So no walk-ups cool. qualify. All right. Well, I have a voice in my head saying Mark Burley did this in two thousand five. Was it the last game though? Um, I thought about Chris Carpenter and Adam Wainwright. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Wainwright was a reliever, though, in 2006 when he did it. Carpenter didn't go nine in 2011 when they won. I can't remember any complete games off the top of my head. So I, I think it's those four. I think it's Bumgarner, Sale, Morton, Burley. But, Doug, what do you think? Ooh, I'm writing it down here as you. Uh, now this is this is where we throw. Well, I'm gonna just go Bumgarner because I know that's that's, that's gotta right. be right. All right, right. so therefore I'm gonna <laughs> cheat only with three, right? So, oh, really? Uh, See how magnanimous he is. Uh, all right, just wanna wait. So you said Bumgarner, Sale, uh, Burley, and Morton. Morton. Charlie Morton. Okay, I actually, kind all of right. have a lot of these anyway. All right, so I I'm gonna add starters though. Doug. I'm gonna add. So I'm going to go with Bumgarner. How about Derek, Derek Lowe? Didn't he throw like 50 games in the World Series? So I'm going <laughs> to throw Derek Lowe in there. I'm going to say, no. uh, what about Beckett? Did Beckett pitch like 1,000 games in, in 03? Ooh. Beckett, I'll say Josh Beckett, Lowe, Mad Bum. The other one I was thinking about was, uh, I can't even read my own writing. Oh, that's Burley. Okay. <laughs> Uh, did I say Just Mike? Make did, a I say guess Mike already. did I say Mike Montgomery? Did I say him already? Yeah, you didn't say him, but okay. he didn't start a game in that All series. Right. So, and yeah, I like Wainwright. Did you say Carpenter? Uh, I said it wasn't those two. Oh, you didn't say. Okay, fine. So, all right, I'll go back to what I had there. So, but Madgum, <laughs> Derek Lowe, Josh Beckett, and whoever I'll say Chris Carpenter. <laughs> That's fine. Okay. So, <laughs> is that enough guesses? <laughs> Okay, uh, we agreed on Bumgarner. I've got Sale, M- Morton, and Burley. You've got Beckett, Carpenter, and Derek Lowe. Derek Lowe. Uh, all right. Well, Jeffrey, is there is there any chance <laughs> that somewhere in there we got this right? Indeed, you guys did. All right, all right. got it. Yeah, all right. That's so what's who, who, what's the answer? Who are the four? Yeah, so three of the four are pretty obvious, pretty recent. So Sale in 2018, uh, Morton 2017, and Bumgarner 2014. Uh, the one uh, that's a bit further back is Josh Beckett 2018, ah, Game yes, Six Yankees. Yes. <laughs> yeah, game good work. <laughs> I was there. I can't believe. I can never believe that I forget these things that I've actually witnessed. But yes. I, don't, I don't know. Um, I, I like this. We almost did this without the Doug Glanville <laughs> cheat sheet. 
Well, we had um, two and two, right? <laughs> so. Right. But I, like, all I know is five out of eight we've now gotten right. It's a little sleazy, but it's also a miracle. Well, a miracle. Yeah. Well, we'll let the council decide, you know, going into the postseason. But I, I feel like when you have, like, unlimited possibilities, it's kind of hard to go with, like, two Yeah, that's, and that's the problem with the whole concept. But, look, if you listen regularly, you know whether we get the question right or we get it wrong. We still bring in the mayor of Starkville, Mayor Tim, to play some tremendous audio clip that has something to do with the question or the answer. So let's call in the mayor. Tim, what do you got for us today? All right, guys, this one was was tricky because of the four names. So we used that Bumgarner clip like yes. last episode or two episodes ago. So we couldn't go with Bumgarner. Chris Sale was two years ago. I feel like that's still fresh in people's minds. And I didn't want to bring, you know, any extra attention to the 2017 Astros. Uh, so we're going to go back to 2003 and the first right. one of these guys. Game six, Josh Beckett, as we said, he didn't just finish it. He started it, shutting out the Yankees. They've had only two winning seasons, 97 and 2003. He's trying to win it all again. Posada, slow roller right side. Beckett picks it up, tags Posada, and the Florida Marlins are world champions. The Marlins have stunned the Yankees, shot New York, and this improbable team, improbable ride, they end up on top, winning in six games over the Yankees. The Marlins win the World Series. How did that happen? Did you you notice as Joe Buck's talking, they're playing Sinatra (laughs) in the background? What's going on there? I love these clips, though. I, I'd forgot all about not. I not only did I forget that Josh Beckett went nine, the final out was a ball hit to, to Josh, Josh Beckett. Right, yeah. Fantastic, <laughs> Jeffrey. Fun question, man. Perfectly timed. Nice going. So thank you very much for joining us on Starkville. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jeffrey. Remember, next week this could be you asking us a question and reveling in the very special thrill of having us start a new trivia losing streak. We'll tell you how to do that a little later in the podcast. But first, one thing we always try to do is we use the trivia question to inspire a fun topic for the show. So, Doug, I want to use this as an excuse to talk about one of my favorite weird streaks in baseball. Wrote about it uh, the other night in my Game 6 Weird and Wild column. Thanks to Julio Urias, this was the 10th year in a row that the guy who got the last out of the World Series was not the pitcher who started that season as his team's closer. It's so bizarre, but I'm going to read you the list. Here we go, okay? Uh, 2020 was Urias. 2019, Daniel Hudson. Not Sean Doolittle. 2018, Chris Sale. What? (laughs) 2017, Charlie Morton. 2016, you brought him up. Mike Montgomery never (laughs) saved a game in his life, saved that game. 2015, Wade Davis, um, he'd been with the Royals, but he was not the closer. Greg Holland got hurt. 2014, we brought him up. Madison Bumgarner. 2013, Koji, Koji Uehara. 2012 was Sergio Romo. 2011 was Jason what? So that's 10 years in a row of a guy saving the last game of the World Series, or at least throwing the final pitch of the World Series, who was not around 
as the closer when they started off the journey. You played baseball, man. You explain this to me. I mean, it's it's like the 2000s. It's just, you know, the bullpenning bonanza that we're experiencing right now. And, I mean, really in the 2010s, there was a times where you started to see teams not even declare closers going into spring training. They come out of spring training and be like, oh, you know, we don't know. And that happened more and more. And now we've seen it. In, in a deeper level now, just in the recent postseason where, I mean, seven guys go into a game and it's like normal, like, you know, who knows? So, so it's situational and it's, it's all about matchups. And there, I don't think teams as much are wed to this is the guy, you know, the Mariano Rivera say that's going to come in no matter what it's very much. It does matter what the circumstance matters. Yeah. I, you know, I was on the zoom call with Dave Roberts the day, I guess it was the off day, so it was the day after game five where uh, my friend Joel Sherman was trying to pin him down on whether Kenley was now going to be the closer moving forward in the World Series, and he just wasn't going there. He was not going to utter those words. We found out why, and it's kind of a question, too. Should Dave Roberts have gone to Kenley Jansen there, uh, ninth inning, final game of the World Series? Uh no, right? No. Uh, as as much as they talked up all his delivery changes, he he just he's so far outside that circle of trust now. Pitched two times in the World Series, uh, gave up three runs. So there's no way they were going to give him the ball if they could find some other guy to give the ball to. But like, what if Julio Urias had blown that lead? How much would Dave Roberts have gotten second-guessed? What do you think? I think less than maybe in the past because it's much more accepted that teams don't designate closers and don't just say, I'm blindly just going with this guy. I just think it's an ensemble, and you you kind of mix when you need to and you match. Uh, there's so much greater understanding and respect for how you have to weigh all these factors to figure out who the best arm is in that scenario. And yeah, sometimes when you have a Rivera, Hoffman, whatever, then you say, okay, they, they can probably get lefties out and they're just dominant. But there's very few people that just dominate consistently in every circumstance against every type of hitter uh, on the home, on the road, whatever. There's always some way to find a specialist for the moment. So I don't think he would have taken as much heat because Jansen has struggled. He had a good regular season, pretty good, but he's still not Jansen of five years ago. And and they and they won, and they chose to you know not go to him. Uh, if he was throwing ninety eight with that cutter, then he would have Phillips bat would have been broken, Brett Phillips. But he doesn't. He can't quite get there. He's a ninety four, which would be a lot when I played, but ninety four, and he and so he can't make those mistakes in the zone like he used to because the movement was so great and he had such velocity. He has to kind of work the corners, and so he's he's a little bit diminished from that dominant closer. And therefore, you need all these other arms, which, by the way, they throw mid-upper 90s with movement any, from lefty and righty. And I, I, yeah. so I think it's way more accepted. Uh, Roberts, you know, would take criticism for other things. I don't think that would have been one of them this, uh, this World Series. No, you're exactly right. He would have gotten second-guessed way more if he'd brought Kenley into that game. Right, right, if, absolutely. He got for not bringing yeah, yeah, him Trin- that game. Right, you need to know. Right, Trinan was still available, I believe, so... Um, yeah, so they, they um, absolutely, 100% agree. Strange Brew. 
the tree. All right, Doug, one last time. Let's pick our favorite strange but true thing from last week from this year's World Series. And honestly, both of our choices could only be from the single wildest play of the whole postseason. We've got to hear this again. It's game four, ninth inning, two outs, two on. Brett Phillips at the plate for the Rays. What happened next? That is into center field. Here comes Kiermaier. Phillips has tied the game. Arose, Arena coming around. Throw home. Now he stumbles. But the ball gets away. Tampa Bay wins it. Brett Phillips, game four hero. Whew. Wow. Epic. That was Epic. insane. Epic. Oh. Great call by Joe Buck, too, on a, just an unbelievable play just trying to keep track of everything maintain the uh, the cadence and the excitement and the emotion of that moment tremendous call by joe buck now i I have a part of this i want to talk about but first doug i heard a rumor that you would like to talk about the randy rosarena (laughs) base running follies what was so strange but true about that (laughs) other than all of it (laughs) well it's it's worth uh sort of uh, memorializing that this guy hit 10 home runs in the postseason and had like what seven during the regular season and I mean yep. so I mean that was insane that was epic so um but so what a series he had and it was fitting that he was the winning run in this so yes coming around third so you know you're you're on first you're you're going first to third and it's kicked by Taylor in center field he keeps going Linares the third base coach waves him on he trips he dive rolls. He starts going back. Then he realizes the ball got away from the catcher. He crawls. He inches his way, and he slaps home plate. Uh, and, uh, I, yeah, I just – so I, I figured, you know, since he was doing all these swim moves on earth, uh, maybe we make him like a, a Phelps Arena. It's more fitting, the gold medalist. Uh, I, I mean, it was just crazy. And I, I was watching this with my wife and my son, and it was just – their reaction was so authentic – because it was like he fell, and, and it was already an exciting inning. They were coming back, and teams were like it was like a boxing match back and forth between the two teams. And here he comes around; it's the winning run, and he falls on his face, but then gets back up. Uh, yeah. So how Buck like kept the composure to not just say something emotional uh, that would have been like showing his shock of the situation? He just like kind of went right through. Uh, and, and, you know, even Jansen, like, where was he? He wasn't, nobody was backing up. I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> so, uh, I, yeah, we got a kick out of that. So I have to say, I have to mark that down. It's very strange that you can swim your way to home plate and <laughs> score the winning run. Yeah, we were screaming in my house. Now, did you ever fall down between home plate and third base? Or vice versa? Really? I, it's weird. I no? I don't know if I... I you never, you never, I, I did you must, ever fall down running the bases? I must question. have. I, well, I used to do it quite often in high school. Uh, but I, I think I got better. I got better. And I don't... You know, I don't know if I have. I, I'm trying to think. Well, I got it's hit good by... good thing if you didn't. Yeah, I can't think of one. I got hit by... I know Scott Service. I only got hit once by a ground ball when I was a runner. And I was like, you know... I was kind of shocked at myself that I got hit. But... Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I will okay. have to look that up, but I don't think anything comes to mind. <laughs> okay. Well, again, that's a good thing. You don't want to be that guy. I mean, it turned out to be awesome and memorable, and he scored that run. He was so determined to score, but 
What a mad dash. Anyway, here's my favorite part of this. Brett Phillips, man. Great guy. Great story. But what were the odds of him becoming the first man since Kirk Gibson to turn a loss into a win with one swing of the bat with two outs in the ninth inning of a World Series game? Uh, In my column, I tried to make the case there's never, ever been anyone less likely to get that hit than him. Think about it. He hadn't gotten a hit in a month. And we had stats look this up. Nobody had ever done that in this spot. He hadn't had an at-bat in two and a half weeks. Nobody had ever done that and gotten a hit in this spot. His batting average had not made it of the above the Mendoza line in any of the last three seasons. Uh, so that would have been a first for one season, let alone three. And Doug, he hadn't driven in a, a run as a pinch hitter in over three years. And then he got one of the legendary hits in World Series history. Heck, baseball history, for that matter. Uh, Doug, your thoughts? Well, you can't you can't skip over the, the heart palpitations. I mean, almost, you know, Gave the guy nearly a coronary. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, it was unbelievable. Uh, I mean, I I think I relate to a small degree of you know just I pinch hit in two thousand three playoffs against the Marlins when I was with the Cubs and uh, and just the feeling of I I was a bench player at that point you know and just sitting there and how hard it is to be sharp uh, let al- you know let alone being on the stage you're in in terms of the stakes but even if you're in a regular season you hadn't hit for a week you just feel horrible your swings off and and I kudos to those players that can come off the bench and just be sharp but then you add on top of it that you're in the world series it's a big moment and your team's kind of starting to get up against the ropes in terms of their series chances uh you know that that is incredible and um you know so I I know that that sense of Wow, how am I going to pull this off? I haven't swung the bat in a game situation in weeks, and just to time it up, especially against you know who is someone meant to close out the game with Jansen. So yeah, I, that's that's a the degree of difficulty is also noteworthy, on top of just the fact that you know what he was able to accomplish. It it was so much fun, uh, the whole thing. <laughs> And I, like, I love the interview with our friend Ken Rosenthal on the field after he'd recovered from his airplane spin moves <laughs> out there, where he just looked at Ken and said, wow, baseball is fun. Like, <laughs> yes! <laughs> that, that was a moment. The whole thing. Epic. All right, that's going to do it for another really fun Starkville. Let's remind you again, Starkville is now available in its entirety, absolutely free, everywhere you get your podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and follow Starkville on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, pretty much everywhere you find your podcasts. And if you'd like to read our work or any of the tremendous writing on our site, there's no better sports writing being done anywhere than in The Athletic. So if you've thought about subscribing, we are still offering an incredible $1 a month special. $1 a month! So check us out. As we head into the baseball offseason, you'll be happy that you did. Tim, that special's still in effect, right? Tim, the $1 a month is still in effect? Okay, you didn't know. Okay, perfect. Um, 
And also remember, you too can be part of this podcast just like Jeffrey Gow today. We're now inviting the listener who submits the most fun and timely trivia question of the week to join us on the podcast and prove, once again, there's almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong if Doug Glanville cheats enough. All you have to do is submit a great baseball trivia question via email. You could do that at StarkvilleAtTheAthletic.com or via Twitter like Jeffrey did today. Where would they tweet at Doug Glanville? Absolutely. It's just at Doug Glanville. D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. And if you wanted to tweet it at me, I'm at Jason with a Y-S-T. J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. Please remember, though, hashtag those questions. Hashtag Starkville QS. So, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Oral Hirschheiser for visiting us. Thanks to Jeffrey Gow for the trivia question. Thanks to our mayor, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. We will see you soon on Starkville.